0: I got up this morning and uh went to let my lab out and opened up the side door and happened to look out into the yard and I saw a bunch of sheep yeah it was it was rather interesting i I remembered at that point that our children had uh been cutting out sheep the other night I was watching them do that as they were here having fun together with miss valerie and uh you know I was blessed and to be the recipient of that and so uh, thank you so much uh, for those who thought about us, and uh, it's, a, it's a great day to be in God's house. I, I, I can't help but not read this. I've got to read this passage of Scripture just to help us focus. You know, I, I, I'm an under-shepherd. I uh, like to keep things in proper perspective. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own sheep, and they know me. Just as my Father knows me and I know the Father, so I sacrifice my life for the sheep. I have other sheep, too. He's talking about us Gentiles. I have other sheep, too, that are not in this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice and they will be one flock. I love that. One flock with one shepherd. One shepherd, Jesus Christ. We're very blessed to know him. Amen. Thank you for your faithfulness to him. Rather interesting message God's put on my heart today. I think you can see that from the title of the message, hope at the 11th hour. I believe in hope. I have hope. I looked up in Webster's dictionary the word hope to get a definition. And this is what Webster defines hope as. It is a feeling that what is wanted will, be ha- will happen. Or a desire accompanied by expectation. I would like to think of hope as an expectation that things can get better. I want you to know that I have hope. Sometimes I, I don't act like I have hope and sometimes you don't. But I do have hope. I have hope for this nation. I have hope for me. And I have hope for you. When I was thinking about hope this week, two passages of Scripture came to my mind. And the first is Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with the 11th verse. You'll notice in this passage that Paul is reminding Gentiles who that is what we are. We're not Jewish people, we're Gentiles. He's reminding Gentile believers. That there was a time when in our life we had no hope, no expectation, and no chance of becoming a part of the family of God. And then spending eternity with God in heaven. We were an eternally hopeless bunch of people. But listen to what Paul writes in in verse 11. He says, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders by birth. You were called the uncircumcised ones by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision even though it affected uh, only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from God's people, from Israel, and you did not know the promises God had made to them. He said you lived in this world without God and without hope. But notice verse 13, but now, now you belong to Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. We belong to Christ Jesus, though he says you were once far away from God. Now you have been brought near to him because of the blood of Christ. So Paul, as you can see here, is emphasizing the fact that we had been living hopeless lives without God and without any hope that we could even find our way to God. Uh, we were living life life with, without hope or the expectation of any kind that things could get better. So they were living without God in this day in in a very troubled way, in a troubled land, and they had no reason to believe that life could get any better for them. And friends, I want you to understand that that is exactly where a lot of people are living right now in this world. And yes, even here here in America, we're living without hope. And I I don't know if that's where you've camped out your life, but... It could be. You may be here today, and you really don't have any hope for the future. Another passage of Scripture that came to mind was 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Paul wrote, And now, brothers and sisters, I want you to know what will happen to the Christians who have died, so that you will not be full of sorrow like people who have no hope. Friends, the vast majority of lost and unbelieving people in this world— Fear that death is the end, that there's nothing after that, that there's no such thing as life after death. Uh, So in their minds, they see death as being final. It is a one-and-done mentality from their perspective. They have no hope beyond life nor beyond the grave. Uh, There are a great many people who live in this world without hope that their life can be any different or that their circumstance can change for the better. And, you know, there was a time just not too long ago that, um, you know, I, I, I began to sense that myself. I, I caught myself feeling not too long ago because of the problems that I've been having with my back. Um, I, I, I realized that pain is one of those things that can get the better of you. There's, there's all kinds of pain, and there's many different kinds of pain, and pain can be troubling in your life. Um, some of you know We've talked about it, that I've kind of struggled for the last four or five years with some lower back issues, and I actually went to a doctor about five years ago, and he looked at my back and he diagnosed me as having three bulging discs in the lower part of my back and when we talked, he said, "Well, you don't have enough problem there to have surgery, but I want to send you to a pain management doctor, and so that's where I went and my doctor has been giving me double epidurals every three months now for the last three years. I, You know, if you'd asked me six years ago if I would have done that, I would have said no because I hate needles. (laughs) I don't like needles. But when you hurt bad enough, a needle can become a welcomed friend. So every three months I go and I get injections and they're no fun. I don't like shots. The last time the doctor put those needles in my back, there were some problems that she was having getting the needles where they needed to be. And so after, after she gave me the shot, she said, I, I, I want to talk to you about going and having some physical therapy. And, um, and so I reluctantly said yes, and I reminded her that I had had some physical therapy about five years ago, and it didn't work. And uh, I even went to a chiropractor several times, and... Uh, he didn't help me either so anyway I consented to her doing that and she referred me to uh, a physical therapy clinic and specifically to a therapist by the name of Sam and when she wrote out my prescription for the therapy she wrote on it Sam brother Randy or Mr. Green is a skeptic so prove him wrong and uh, you know I confess to that well I'm in my third week of physical therapy. And I'm actually standing here this morning with no pain. And that is a beautiful thing. Uh, It has been helping me. Uh, I won't tell you that I'm totally pain-free, but she's been giving me some exercises that I can do. Whenever the pain begins to scream down my back and down my leg, I can get down on the floor and do some exercises. I look really silly doing them. But they, they help me, and they've been... Uh, a welcome thing in my life. My, my goal, and, and the goal of the therapist that I, you know, I'm, I'm seeing, is to uh, help me strengthen the muscles in my back and uh, to help my back be able to keep the pressure off my spine so that my discs aren't being compressed. And so here's a little bit of confession on my part I, I'm out of shape, <laughs> and, and I've been out of shape for a long time. Sitting behind a desk, you know, six, seven hours a day. Looking at a computer screen, riding around in the car, doing whatever I do, um, I'm not as active as I once was, and so I'm not in as good a shape. I do have some physical problems that are, are not going to go away, so I've got to take responsibility for that, and and I can help myself by doing what the therapist is planning for me to do, uh, as long as I you know she's training me to do these things, as long as I do them. What? what i have to do is follow her instructions and stay on track with her plan and hopefully i can get better that's my goal so so hope for me is um, something that does exist Uh, the hope that i have i found to be achievable Um, i've also learned that my hope is found in someone other than myself Um, that may sound kind of strange to you but Getting the right person to help you when you have these kind of problems is, is critically important. And, and so I'm, I'm thankful for Dr. Shoemaker. I'm also thankful for Sam. I don't even know Sam's last name at this point. But she's been helping me every week, twice a week, and, and she's been doing a good job. I've also realized that hope is possible, but it requires effort on my part. Now, think about that. Don't lose that thought. My physical therapist does have a plan, but I do have to do the physical work of exercising and getting myself back in shape to get better. And she said this to me. She said, I'm going to give you a plan, and if you follow this plan, then you can get better. You know, having a plan, just having a plan is a beautiful thing. But if I don't execute that plan, then the plan alone that's written on paper will do me no good. Good. Do you understand what I'm saying? I want you to understand that spiritual healing is no different. It's not. You you have to have hope for spiritual healing. You also have to have a divine plan for spiritual healing. But you, you have to exercise God's plan for things to get better in your life. Friends, I I, I know I may be preaching to the choir here, and some of you and I have already had this conversation this morning, but our nation needs help. Right? Our nation needs help. Our, Our nation needs healing. Our nation needs hope. The hope that we need can't be found in a doctor's office. It won't be found in a series of injections. It won't be found in a regiment of physical exercises it won't be found through local state and even national elections and it certainly won't be found in a new crop of politicians are you hearing me the hope we need is found in god the hope we need is found in the lord jesus christ there is no hope for us outside of god we won't find hope any other place I'm convinced that God has a master plan that'll work. And the truth is, the truth of the matter is that His plan will work to bring our nation the healing that it so desperately needs. It'll work to bring healing in your life. It'll work to bring healing in your family. There is hope in God's plan. Why? Because His plan is based on truth. You see, the Bible teaches us that God is truth. God is truth. It's been said that it is in knowing the truth that the freedom God offers is made manifest in your life and in our society. I know you remember that in the garden, the one tree that God told Adam that he and Eve were not to eat from was called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You remember that, right? Uh, this was a very different kind of tree from all the other trees in the garden. It wasn't just... Uh, a, A tree of good and evil. No, this tree involved knowledge. It involved knowledge. Do you remember what Satan said to Eve? He specifically told her this. He said, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. And you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. So what was Satan up to here? Well, certainly no good, right? He was up to no good. Friends, listen. And listen carefully, God cannot lie to us. It is impossible for God to lie. He's not a liar. It's not in his character. He, he can only tell us the truth because he is truth. Therefore, everything that God tells us is true. God is a truth teller. On the flip-flop side of that, Satan can't tell the truth. He is a liar. He is a deceiver. He is a trickster. I am certain. Based on what Satan said to Eve that I'm certain that he knew exactly what God had said to Adam as he placed Adam in the garden. In Genesis chapter 2 verse 15 it says the Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and care for it. But the Lord God gave him this warning. You may freely eat of any fruit in the garden except the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of its, tree, of its fruit, you will surely die. So what's he doing here? He, he's wanting to trick them into doubting God's word. He is trying to get them to disobey God's instructions. He literally wants them to uh, determine for themselves what was good and what was evil. He's wanting them to set up their own standard of truth. You see, Satan knew that if he could get Adam and Eve to refuse to live by the standard of knowledge of good and evil that god had given them then they would in turn set up their own inept reasoning and 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 they would discern for themselves what they thought was good and evil well friends, isn't that what the world is doing right now on steroids think about that i mean you 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 think about this the world wants you to believe that things like abortion are okay, and that it's actually good. Uh, The world wants you to believe that parents have no right when it comes to overseeing their children's life in any way. They want you to believe that government knows best. The world wants you to believe that God's creative order of the male and female can and should be manipulated by human beings at their mere convenience. The world wants you to believe that family can be defined however you want to define it. And that when it comes to sexuality, for any age, anything goes. The world wants you to believe that God is a mythological creature that is made up by and for weak-minded people. And friends, the world wants you to believe that there is no such thing as absolute truth. That truth can be whatever you want it to be. God alone embodies knowledge. And that is why in our very best effort, we can only distort what is good and what is evil. God alone has untainted reasoning because God, only, God alone is truth. In John chapter 1, verse 14, in his gospel, John writes the word which we know to be Jesus Christ he became a human and lived among us. We saw his glory, the glory that belonged to the Son, the only Son of the Father, and he was full of grace and truth. He later wrote in verse 16, Because he was full of grace and truth for him we, from him, we all received one gift after another. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the only Son, is very close to the Father, and He has shown us what God is like. Jesus Himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, No one comes to the Father except through Me. When Jesus was being tried that awful day, in those last series of trials before Pilate, Pilate said at one point, so you are a king. And Jesus said to him in response, you are the one saying that I am a king. This is why I was born and came into the world to tell people the truth. And everyone who belongs to the truth listens to me. I was reading some comments written by Dr. Evans the other day. And he spoke about truth this way. He said, truth at its core is God-based knowledge. It entails God's viewpoints, uh, viewpoint on a matter. Knowing truth equates to knowing God. Truth cannot be created by the creature, just like the game pieces in a game cannot be determined or cannot determine their own function. Truth is a powerful entity able to set free even those who are indissolubly bound. Truth, reasoning, and recognition ushers in clarity. He goes on to write that truth is God's absolute objective standard by which reality is measured. It is a predetermined established entity that cannot change if we wish to do so, simply if we wish to do so. Just as the clock in Greenwich, England Does not adjust itself to the passers-by. From the many different nations who come to view it. Truth does not adjust itself to our whims or wants either. As the world looks to Greenwich to know the correct time. All of life including civil government. Is to look to God and his word to know the truth by which freedom complies. So think about this. Why? Why? Why are we doomed to failure if we begin to start setting up our own standard of truth? Why? That's something you need to consider. It's simply because it's the very same reason that we will fail if we don't follow God's plan for spiritual healing, whether we're thinking about national healing or even personal healing. The the elements of, of God's plan for bringing about that healing are the same for both. As we think about this this morning, I, I wonder: are are we in agreement that our nation's in trouble and needs healing? Would you amen that? Would would we agree that it is a spiritual healing that we need? If you believe that, and I pray, I I pray that if you believe that, that you're going to listen very carefully to the words that we're going to look at this morning from God's word that. I pray that you'll you'll listen more carefully than you've ever listened before. And I pray that it's going to change you and me this morning forever. May we never be the same having heard what we're going to hear today. In, In just a moment, I'm going to read to you one of the most powerful promises ever made to His people. To people just like you and me. It includes both a prayer and it includes a promise. It is found in Second Chronicles chapter 7. I'm sure you've read that passage probably more than once, and I, I pray that it'll mean something to you today, and I pray that um, it, it, it'll change your life. The very fact that God heard Solomon's prayer, I mentioned it includes a prayer. Solomon obviously prayed. The fact that God heard Solomon's prayer is evidence enough for me to know that there's always hope if God's people will but just fall to their knees and pray as God instructed his people to do when Solomon dedicated that temple that he had built for God. kind of went back and looked at the nation of Israel during this period of time. And when you read about the nation during the early days of Solomon and and at the time the temple was built, you'll understand that it was a very tough day for the nation of Israel. And yet they were, you know, I mean, prosperity in that day was abundant. They were a very wealthy nation in consideration to the other nations. But this nation was spiritually bankrupt. Spiritually bankrupt, very much like America is today. We may be, and I looked it up just to make sure, but we are considered to be the richest nation in the world. And yet we are fastly becoming a spiritual wasteland. We're fastly becoming a godless nation. Friends, listen, we need to do more than just say we need to pray. And that we believe in prayer. We need to do more than just open up our doors for a few hours on every other Wednesday for a handful of people to come in and pray. Are you hearing me? We must pray. And we must take prayer seriously. If we really want God to do something to fix our nation. Who knows if we will pray. If we will but pray. We just might move the hand of God to bring about healing and restoration. To our once great nation. I have hope. I have hope that it can still happen. I want you to consider God's promise to Solomon and to his nation. Look with me in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 12, through verse 14. It's interesting. You know, I, ha, have you ever had God invade your night and show up in your bedroom and talk to you? Some of us would be hurrying to the hospital or to the funeral home, one. <laughs> Listen to what it says. One night the Lord appeared to Solomon. And he said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this temple as the place for making sacrifices. God was very specific when he said to Solomon, I have heard and answered your prayer. But God wants more of his people praying than just Solomon. It's a great thing that their leader was praying, but the people needed to be praying along with him. Why? Simply because our prayers demonstrate our need and our dependency upon God. You see, a lack of prayer only reveals an attitude of self-sufficiency. When you don't pray, it's like saying to God, God, I don't need you. God, our creator, wants to be involved in every part of our lives. He does. He is an intimate God. He wants to be with you 24-7. And when he's not allowed to do that, he sometimes has to cause drastic events to get our attention and to win our allegiance and our hearts back to him. I want you to look at verse 13. God said to him, at times I might shut up the heavens so that no rain falls, or I might command locusts to devour your crops. Or I might send plagues among you. I mean, in our day, God could say, well, I may cause a shortage of food. I may even cause um, you to run out of fuel. Or the stock market may fall. What was God trying to say, and what was he trying to do? What did he want Solomon to really hear? I think God was saying, I want an intimate relationship with you. And if if I don't have that with you, if you don't allow me to have that with you, to get your attention and your allegiance, I may have to cause your great wealth to be destroyed. I may even have to cause your good health to disappear. Friends, just think about where our nation has been over the last three years. Think about where our world has been over the last three years we have been suffering from a virus that has killed millions and isolated billions and now america and much of the rest of the world is collapsing into an economic recession i don't see any of you disagreeing with me but does god have our attention yet has he won our allegiance yet what more will God have to do to turn us around when are we going to know if God has our attention and allegiance I I want you to look with me at verse 14 notice how God begins this verse he uses the word then then after I've caused all of these things to happen he says then As if to say, it's like God saying, when and if I see my people doing the following things, then I will know that you've turned around, and then together we can work on turning our world around. Look at verse 14 specifically. He says, then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven." and will forgive their sin and heal their nation. There are four things that God is looking for in each of us that will tell him that we need him and want him in our lives. Four things that God is looking for. First of all, God is looking for people who have a humble spirit. He said, if my people, notice that, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves now humility is a difficult and yet necessary virtue to obtain we are not born with humility it is a personal choice Uh, and and that's what makes it so hard because what does the song say it's hard to be humble (laughs) humility is difficult because it requires the death of self-love because it is also necessary because no one can rightly relate to God without it. Friends, only those who empty themselves of all their pride and pretense will experience and enjoy the exalted God. Humility is something that you know, shows respect to other people. Humble people also experience much of God. And humble people trust God. I mean, think about it. Prideful people manipulate and they strive to secure life that they desire. But humble people don't have to do that. Because they trust in the Lord's sovereign leadership. And in his divine supply. Solomon wrote these words in Proverbs 3 verse 5. Trust the Lord with all your heart. And, and don't depend on your own understanding. Remember the Lord in all that you do. And he will give you success. Don't depend on your own wisdom. Respect the Lord and refuse to do wrong. Then your body will be healthy and your bones will be strong not only is God looking for people who have a humble spirit but he's looking for people who have a prayerful attitude he said if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray Uh, obviously this is a divine call from God for people to pray but he's not asking the world to pray he wants his own people to pray I believe that we can and Will play a much greater role where this nation uh, in, in, in where this nation is heading than the unchurched world will ever be able to do because they don't know any better, but we do. We do. It's been said that prayer is an earthly request for a heavenly intervention. Oh, my soul, do we need heaven to invade our lives and 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 our land? Prayer is this amazing tool that God has given us to pull something down out of the invisible and into the visible where we live. Dr. Evans said prayer enacts God's hand in history like nothing else because prayer is humanity's relational communication with God. And, and you know and I know that, that God is all about relationships. Dr. Brad White wrote, If there ever was a verse that addresses the greatest problem, gives the only prescription, and makes the most powerful promise to our land today. This is surely it. We live in a land and in a world that has thumbed its nose in the face of the one who created it. People have rejected him completely and are confidently strutting their way to hell while thinking that the the whole time that they're too good to go there. Daily we are reminded of the overwhelming wickedness of our world Hardly a day passes that we don't read of some horrendous crime, hear of some ludicrous decision or watch some dangerous event happening before our eyes on live television. That's our world. It's pretty scary out there. Who's going to do something to fix it? Who's going to make things better? Somebody has to do something, right? Hmm. But who's going to fix it? You and I can't depend on the world to fix itself because it's only making things worse every day. And friends, you can't trust politicians to do that either, right? So who's it going to be? I I want to point your attention to this divine prescription written by God, and I want you to see who it's written for. This is the key. This is the key. You know, when when I mentioned that, Dr. Shoemaker, my pain doctor, wrote a prescription to Sam. She wrote it for me. She wrote it for me. She didn't write it for you. She wrote that prescription for me. Well, who is God writing this prescription for? He's writing it for you. He's writing it for me. He's writing it for us, the church. It is really written for people who know God but in all honesty are living according to the desires of their heart and not necessarily God's. Christian I want you to understand and please hear me in this. We want God to heal our nation but before God heals our nation he's got to deal with our own heart. We've got to deal with our We've got to let God have his place in our life. That's why he's looking for humble people. That's why he's looking for people who will pray. God is looking for people who have a heart to seek his forgiveness and and for his favor. And he's he's looking for his people to turn to him in repentance. We're very blessed. And, And I mentioned this and she's going to shoot me for doing it. But Rachel works hard to keep this house clean. She can go through and clean everything, and those little black bugs just crawl right back under the door. <laughs> and they're everywhere. But she works really hard to keep the house of God clean. Nobody in their right mind likes a dirty house, right? Not you, not me, not certainly not God. I made a commitment to Joyce when we decided to get a yellow lab named Izzy 14 years ago. I made a commitment to her that. I would do the very best I could to keep all the yellow hair vacuumed up in our house. Some of you know what I'm talking about. She's a really big dog that sheds in a really big way, and she used to growing up. She would only shed twice a year. But now in her old age, she sheds every day, every day of her life. Thank God for vacuum cleaners. Amen? <laughs> Where would we be without them? We, we have a pretty good vacuum cleaner at, at home. It's not a real expensive one. It's just a good one. But it doesn't work by itself. It likes company. And I have to go in the bedroom and get the vacuum cleaner, and I have to plug it in, and I have to turn it on, and I have to vacuum the floor and make sure that all the hair gets up. I have to do that. It requires that I turn it on, and then do the work. Well, guess what? Prayer is the same way. For prayer to work, you have to work at praying. Are you listening? You have to work at praying. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 15. God specifically says this to Solomon. He says, my eyes will be opened. And my ears attentive to every prayer made in this place. I'm convinced that God listens and he counts our prayers. And he knows. He knows that I don't pray enough. Neither do you. Neither do we as a church. We've got a few that are faithful to pray, and they'll pray till hell freezes over or heaven opens up. One of the two. They're faithful. He goes on to say, For I have chosen this temple, this place of worship, and set it apart to be holy, a place where my name will be honored forever. I will always watch over it, for it is dear to my heart. Everyone should want a clean house. And a clean house speaks of faithful attention, but also ultimately to the glory of God. But while maintaining a clean house for the Lord's glory is a worthy aspiration, we must understand that the house where we live isn't God's primary concern. You live in that house. God doesn't. In fact, God cares more about the state of the house where he lives than he does at your house where does God live in your heart he cares about your heart that is his home so think with me for on this for just a minute if you call yourself a Christian and I would pretty much guess that everybody in here does and if in fact you are then you bear and wear the name of Christ 24 7 right That's who you are. That's who you want to be known as being. Well, that means, according to the word of God, that your body is his house, and you should care more about keeping his house uncluttered and clean than you do cleaning up your house, right? I can't help but think that that is what David thought when he wrote these words. As David prayed, Psalms 51, verse 2. He said, wash me from my guilt and purify me from my sin. Verse 7, he says, purify me from my sin and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. In verse 9, he said, don't keep looking at my sin. Remove, I, I love that word remove. Remove the stain of my guilt. Take it away, blot it out. Do whatever you have to do, but get rid of the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. What does God want us to do with this message? I think it's pretty obvious and it's pretty simple. I think people need to be praying for our nation. But I think before our prayers can get to God for our nation, we've got to be serious about our own heart. And we've got to ask God for a clean heart. That is one of the goals I have this morning for you, is that you will approach God and ask God for a clean heart. Because if you have a clean heart, then your prayers can make it to the throne of God, and you can be effective and fruitful in your praying for our nation. So I want you to pray first for yourself this morning. And second of all, when your heart is right, I want you to pray for our nation. We've all agreed that spiritual healing is needed for our nation. But God, it's got to start with you. There's never been a revival that started with a mass group of people. It always started with one. And you might be the one that God uses as the seed of revival or even an awakening in our nation. Will you let God do that for you today?